It surprises me every day, and yet it remains true every day, how much I love saying, I am Mr. and Ms. So-and-so's lawyer. You know, I get an enormous side of satisfaction about walking into a room with whoever is on the other side, whether it's the Crown or the tribunal or the psychiatrist or the hospital's lawyer, and saying, this is Mr. or Ms. So-and-so, and I am this person's lawyer. Because up until that point, that person has had direct contact with a lot of state authority, and you've not been there to be that buffer and to be that advocate. And the effect that you have when you walk into that room, everybody's attitude toward your client changes. Generally speaking, they won't be disrespecting or discounting your client because now they're having a deal with you because you're that person's lawyer. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we're joined by Anita Segetti. Anita is one of Canada's leading mental health lawyers. Her expertise spans all aspects of mental health and its interactions with the Canadian justice system. Her passion for her clients and the law is inspiring. Despite her day-to-day in and out of hospitals, tribunals, criminal courts, and review boards, she maintains a remarkable optimism and enthusiasm for her work and her clients. Join us as we learn what happens when somebody who wants to become a doctor scores perfect on their LSATs on this episode of Of Counsel. So most of my work is before administrative tribunals and in the Court of Appeal, except for those times in the year when I will take a few weeks out at a time to do inquest litigation, death inquiries up at the office of the office of the chief coroner. So um, during each day, I may have a number of hearings, one to three, um, and they will be held generally uh, within psychiatric hospitals. So a lot of the consent and capacity tribunal work that I do, for example, is held in general hospitals with psychiatric wards. So I'll be at St. Mike's or at Mount Sinai Hospital, or Sunnybrook, or North York General, and the hearings will travel there, and I will travel there to meet my client. Um, The other tribunal I appear before almost every day is the Ontario Review Board, and that's the forensic psychiatric clients who come in through criminal justice. Those hearings are held in the big psychiatric hospitals that used to be run by the government. So it's CAMH that most people are familiar with, or St. Joe's in Hamilton, for example, or Ontario Shores Mental Health Center in Whidbey. So I'll be going all over the place just for that. Okay, so one question I have for you is trying to understand how someone ends up in some form of the justice system if they have a mental health problem. So for example, imagine someone uh, has schizophrenia, hasn't been taking their medication. Uh, what can typically unfold from there and, and as they navigate through the system? Describe that for us. 
So there are, there are probably two ways to come into the justice system. One is the civil stream, which we can talk about later, but I think your question is probably more about the criminal justice system. So after an individual is charged with a criminal offense, the first signs of serious mental disorder may lead to concerns about fitness to stand trial. That's a very common way to come into the forensic mental health system. If there are concerns that as a result of major mental disorder, someone's unable to appreciate or participate in their own defense and understand the nature of the legal proceedings of the criminal charge and the criminal process, they may, there may be an assessment of their fitness that either the, the counsel for the accused asks for, or more commonly, Crown or the court may order an assessment of their fitness. They will then be uh, assessed by a forensic psychiatrist and a, a decision will be made whether they're fit to stand trial. If they're not fit to stand trial, they um, will perhaps be the subject of a treatment order to see if we can get them fit to stand trial. Or uh, if that doesn't work or if that's, there's no application for that, they'll go off to the jurisdiction of the Ontario Review Board and be reviewed every year to see whether they become fit. And is, are there some cases where people just never become fit? Even 10 years down the road, they're still not capable of standing trial? Yes. There are a very small category of individuals that we refer to as, as the permanently unfit. For obvious reasons, they are permanently unfit to stand trial, and there's no hope for them becoming fit. Um, sometimes those individuals end up spending the rest of their lives detained in psychiatric facilities. Um, there's some relatively recent amendments that would allow occasionally for people to receive a stay or to receive an absolute discharge from the system, despite that they remain unfit and without ever having stood trial. But in those cases, we must demonstrate that they also no longer pose a significant risk to the public safety and that it's in the in interest of the administration of justice um, to let them go. Okay, so as you're describing this, like what, what I'm hearing is people can, you know, stay detained for indefinite periods of time. And I think that's a real misunderstanding of the general population. And we saw a lot of this controversy unfold uh, in a case, I think it was about five years ago, the catch car case, where there was sort of this notion that the person, quote unquote, got off because they were ill. Um, tell us a little bit about how gross of a misunderstanding that is about the justice system and what that what are some of the other misunderstandings that you think need to be corrected for the general public? So I think what we're talking about there is a finding of the absence of criminal responsibility, for example, as in Kashkar. That's, that's the sort of next step. Some people are found not criminally responsible in relation to their charges. And uh, the finding literally means that the individual was unable to appreciate the nature or consequences of their actions or knowing that they, they were wrong in law or morally as a consequence of mental disorder. The, the major um, misconception is that people are getting away with murder, for example, that people are malingering, that people are feigning mental disorder in order to avoid uh, a life sentence in, in the prison system. It is very difficult to get an NCR verdict in respect of serious index offenses such as homicides. The Crown will, will generally oppose the, the NCR designation. <clears throat> if you are found NCR, uh, it, it means that you have had an episode that led you to be unable to, to appreciate what was going on. So um, the, 
it's not as if a person walks free. It's not an acquittal. It's not as if um, there are no consequences and no detention that follow an NCR verdict. In fact, the the average person will spend in excess of a decade under the jurisdiction of the Ontario Review Board consequent to and following a finding of NCR. Much of that time is often spent in a very secure psychiatric detention setting that really resembles a uh, um, custodial setting, except that there is treatment, there are psychiatrists, and there are therapies provided. However, the security levels of some of our institutions are, are severe. We have a maximum secure psychiatric facility uh, known as Waypoint up in Penetanguishene, for example. We have 11 medium secure psychiatric facilities. And then there are lower levels of security and people cascade through the system. So it's a process and people don't get moved out into the system or become discharged subject to conditions until they're well enough and their risk to the um, society is reduced sufficiently to allow for that. So it's a long process. And in the case of more minor um, criminal charges, when people are found in CR, they generally spend much longer detained with much greater losses of liberty than they ever would have had they been found or um, pled guilty. Right. So like if you're facing, for example, an assault charge, imagine someone is assaulted on the street as a result of someone suffering from a mental illness. Um from a criminal law perspective, I would look at that and say, maybe you'll get 30 days in jail for that. But you're saying from a mental health perspective, you might end up spending quite a bit longer uh, under supervision and in detention. Absolutely. I have many, many clients who've been detained in hospital for many, many years, whose initial index offense that brought them into criminal justice about which they were found in CR was a simple assault or less, or sometimes as little as property damage, mischief, uh, a theft. So things that they would have uh, got time served, if anything, for, they will spend years in the system. And, and those are the, the unfortunate clients who uh, are simply either not responsive to treatment, so their their behavior continues to be unruly in some way. Doesn't that raise some really difficult ethical questions as a lawyer? Because if you have someone coming into court who you know um, may have a proper NCR defense, and you know that, for example, if you just pled them guilty, they could be out in 10 days, um, putting forward that NCR, you know, in the course of you doing your ethical responsibilities, you might end up having them incarcerated. How do you deal with those sorts of conflicts? No, I agree. And every day there's some difficult ethical questions and um, situations to navigate for counsel. Um, yes, we, as a matter of principle, policy, and philosophy, we do, do not want to incarcerate people who were not responsible for their actions as a result of mental disorder. On the other hand, uh, imagine the surprise of clients who end up detained in secure settings when they would have been uh, freed uh, in court. So ultimately, the question of NCR arises once you are fit to stand trial. And anyone who's fit to stand trial must, uh, by definition, be able to instruct their lawyer. So it's a question of obtaining proper instructions, generally written instructions, when an NCR verdict is going to be sought or agreed to by defense. So at that point, they're fit, and what you have to do is ensure, get written instructions after explaining at, you know, ad nauseum that choosing the NCR path could result in lifelong detention. 
that it is indefinite detention and that the determination to discharge you absolutely at the end of the day will be in the hands of a tribunal and that there's no telling whether that'll happen next month, next year, 10 years from now or never. Do you find that um, in those smaller scale offenses, crowns are more willing to agree to an NCR finding knowing that the person would be under longer terms of supervision? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and often that comes from you know, a, a shared paternalism within the system. Usually those accused presenting with minor offenses will have had a very lengthy history a criminal history of being charged with those types of minor minor offenses and a history of not getting uh, treatment in an institutional setting and not getting well. So there'll be a sort of shared, um, you know, as I say, paternalism, where everybody believes that it's in the best interest of that accused person to land in a forensic psychiatric facility and choose the NCR route, because for sure, they're guaranteed to have a period of sustained likely treatment, but at least detention therapy and so on. So um, there's n- not that the kind of resistance you see on a homicide with minor offenses from crowns with respect to NCR verdicts, and they're much more common as a result. But do you see uh, in the course of those scenarios where someone is facing um, a smaller uh, scale offense, um, and some, perhaps a lawyer who doesn't have experience in mental health law, uh, maybe does primarily criminal law, misstepping and, and agreeing to an NCR, and then you have to come in and try and get them out after years of being under ORB review? Yes, I see, I see that a lot. So um, we do a lot of education for defense counsel around this issue. And I think in the last decade, that education uh, has really benefited the bar. And we are seeing, I think, a dramatic reduction in people coming into the NCR stream consequent to very minor offenses. So we're finally seeing a reduction in new NCR accused coming into the system in Ontario, whereas prior, uh, we were seeing a 10% increase year over year for many years. So finally, just in the last year or two, we're actually seeing those numbers of new accused coming into the system um, falling for the first time, I think, in decades. What are some of the red flags you would advise counsel to look for, you know, in having someone come before they're meeting them in custody and they're saying and screaming, I just want to plead out, um, you know, as an expert who's dealt with mental health over many, many years, um, what are things that you've learned to sort of spot those things right away and, and flag the issue before we get into these sorts of problems? So I'm not sure I understand what you're asking me. Is it in terms of behavior that we're looking for? Yeah, behavior or just maybe even past history that would be indicative of uh, mental health, um, underlying mental health concerns. So I think all those things, I think the more you know about the client, the better equipped you'll be to know whether um, their mental health really is an issue that you need to bring into the litigation or into the criminal law context. I think you know the the test for fitness, for example, is extremely low. So you know one one mistake that's frequently made is just because your client is obviously very unwell, that you need to do something about that right away, whether to to raise fitness or to raise NCR, just because uh, there's mental disorder. It'll often be quite obvious that someone is acutely unwell in terms of, you know, they're having a manic episode or they're psychotic, it may be very obvious to everyone in the courtroom that that's happening. 
none of that necessarily means that the person's either unfit to stand trial or that they're um, not criminally responsible. They may well understand the court processes and the charges against them and be able to instruct you. Um, so there may be nothing that you have to do at that point. That doesn't mean, depending on the charge, that you can't, with your client's consent, explore mental health diversion where it's available to you. Um, the important thing is make sure your client, if they're fit, agrees that you should be discussing these things with the Crown because the worst thing you can do is go approach the Crown and try and figure out some deal that is um, contingent on an admission of, of mental health issues or an admission of commission of the elements of the offense and your client hasn't instructed you to do that because that'll come back to haunt you at the end of the day. So make sure you speak with your client. If you have your client's instructions to bring their mental health into issue, then you can explore diversion, you can explore uh, other options early on, but you always have to be instructed by clients. I think the biggest problem in the system is we all tend to discount clients' instructions by virtue of the fact that they appear to us to be unwell, and then we throw all that out the window and do all kinds of things we would never do otherwise. You know, disclose all kinds of things that our client has shared with us in confidence with the Crown, tell the court, uh, that you would never do with a client who's not mentally unwell. So just basically have to treat your client as any other client, subject to their instructions. If you have concerns, discuss those with them mm -hmm. and uh, respect their rights to participate in the system as anyone else would. So talking a little bit about that um, type of revealing of the mental health and the stigmatization that may come from that and, and the lasting effects, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the civil side of things, and uh, I, I, I'm going to infer from that you mean people getting committed on Form 1s, and, and what does that mean? Like, let's say there is a family member who's very concerned about uh, a brother or sister who says, I'm going to call the police and get him assessed. What happens, and what would you caution that person before they pick up the telephone? That's a very good question. So um, for the, over 20 years... I have taught family members of those with serious mental health issues um, in a seminar setting every eight weeks. So for 20 years, every eighth Wednesday, I go and teach a support group through the former Toronto East General Hospital about the law in relation to civil commitment. One of the main reasons I do that is because there are some other advocacy organizations for families who for decades have uh, been encouraging family members to utilize police in uh, respect of their family member. It's a very bad idea to call 911 and have police attend to deal with a mental health issue. Um, and what I caution families about is they, they lose control over next steps when that happens. And it will be in the discretion of the officer whether they choose to lay criminal charges or bring your person to the hospital, which is what you meant. And what's worse is that families have been encouraged and sometimes will uh, exaggerate what's happening in the home in order to mm. persuade the officer to take the person to the hospital. They will allege a threat or a minor assault that never happened. And as you know from your work, it, it's almost impossible to take that back. You lose control over that. Uh, it ends up on the person's record and criminal charges are more likely to be laid the more you exaggerate what's happened in the home. Add to that, there is a very real problem of lethal interactions between police and um, clients in crisis. 
I'm not saying everyone's going to get shot when police show up and there is a mental health crisis. In fact, to be fair to the Toronto Police Service, I know based on my work, they get 25 to 30,000 calls about what Toronto Police terms emotionally disturbed persons a year. They make between nine and 11,000 Mental Health Act apprehensions. And you know, they generally deal uh, very appropriately and capably with de-escalating these situations. But we also know that we've had people die in these um, interactions with police. And I have been counsel on at least a dozen uh, police shooting inquests, including this past summer in relation to Andrew Loku, which, as you know, was very divisive for the mm-hmm, city. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to create a, an unnecessary additional contact between someone in a mental health crisis and a frontline police officer. So what I say to families is there are other options for them in the civil system. They can attend before justice of the peace on an ex party basis, swear out an information and obtain what's called a form two. That will also give police authority to bring the person to the hospital emergency door for assessment. But that's the only authority they have at that point, or that's the authority that they'll be acting on. So at least it circumscribes what the police officer will do when they execute that form. Uh, Equally, you can ask a family physician or any other physician um, to assess your family member and get a form one done. If they've seen the person in the last seven days, that will actually authorize a 72-hour detention in a psychiatric hospital for an assessment to determine if a psychiatrist uh, a psychiatrist will assess and will determine whether uh, a Form 3 then for two weeks should be signed, which can be continued for a month. You can detain people under the civil system fairly indefinitely, mm-hmm. uh, and lots of people are detained in that system. So when I first started doing this work for the first 10 to 15 years, my work was almost entirely in the civil mental health realm. And uh, over time, it's migrated almost entirely into the criminal side of things and the forensic review board system. And that mirrors actually the migration of the client population. It's the same clients. Whether they're charged with minor offenses or not, you know, it's really just happenstance. The, the client population is exactly the same. They're seriously mentally ill individuals um, who will have episodes where you know, their behavior will become noticed and will become an issue. And whether they're actually charged or not is the dividing line. But uh, over the course of my 25 years at the bar, a greater percentage of this population has been criminally charged and has come into criminal justice simply because of the impression justice system participants had that the civil system was not coping and or not effective in getting treatment to people. So, so. there's there's two very important things. Uh, there are many important things, but there's two two that really stand out to me um, with with you saying that. One is the um, I guess the level of communication to the public on how to deal with um, family members or people who are close to you with mental health issues. Um, and I think we'll return to that. The other was um, the dangers of, of police being involved. And you said, in fairness, the police have, uh, they respond a lot. And it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there have been steps made to try and properly address uh, tragedies like Mr. Loku. Um, have you seen improvements over the past 10 years? And, and uh, where do you think we're going with this? <clears throat> so... And we have seen, um, I think Toronto Police Service, 
I'm sure I'll, I'll be made to pay for this later, but Toronto Police Service has, in fact, um, made great strides in their attempts to uh, reduce the number of lethal outcomes in these interactions over the years that I've been involved, um, particularly because the inquest recommendations that have come out of these death inquiries over the years have been consistent about a number of things that needed to be uh, changed and improved. Training to frontline officers about de-escalation and verbal de-escalation before reaching for weapons um, has been recommended in every single inquest. We're now, I think, going to see, finally, amendments to the Police Services Act. But have you seen that in practice, where there is actual de-escalation over the past five years, even, as compared to where we were? I've seen... I, th- I believe I have. I've seen the results of what TPS has done is they've incorporated role play into their training um, that that has been informed by actual clients. So the education for Toronto Police Service now includes um, consumers and survivors of the mental health system, former and current clients, particularly through CAMH's Client Voice. The Empowerment Council has participated in these inquests and has participated directly in the training. So frontline officers are now mandatorily being trained uh, on how to respond effectively clear communication, verbal communication, using the person's first name. So I think we are seeing results. However, uh, there's a lot more work to be done. And in particular, there's a lot more work to be done about um, the difficult issue of race as it plays into these interactions, particularly as we know, Black Lives Matter uh, raised the issue with respect to the Loku death. And Andrew Loku's death and the inquest for the first time in this city uh, was expressly permitted to explore issues of race as well as mental health, and in particular, anti-black racism and intersectionality between race and mental health. Because one of the things that we looked at is we don't even know, we, we have an impression and anecdotally are aware that a lot of the people in mental health crisis who end up dead at the hands of police happen to also be black, and happen to generally be male and young young male. So young black men in mental health crises were felt by their respective communities to be particularly at risk in these interactions, just sort of based on impressionistically and anecdotally what we thought we understood. But the data don't exist. They've never been collected in that way because of a historical revulsion to the idea of collecting race-based data. Of course, we're turning over a new leaf on that, and the Ontario Human Rights Commission is encouraging us, and we know that it's important that we keep data in this way so that we can address the issue. So I think now all of that is going to happen. Uh, we need to look back on all of that, but that's, you know, that's another layer of complexity where I think there's a lot of work to be done. The way that frontline officers, TPS, all police services in Canada relate to, um, to black people, to individuals in crisis, and particularly uh, where there's intersectionality between race and mental health. What were some of the other recommendations that came out that either have been put in place or you'd like to see put in place um, that are, I guess, uh, incubated right now? Well, one of the recommendations that was made in the LOCU inquest was not one that my client groups particularly welcomed. In fact, they've been 
sort of fighting against it for many years was a recommendation for more taser in the hands of frontline officers. Um, that is being implemented. So just in the last few weeks, Toronto Police Service Board has authorized another 400 tasers into the, the hands of frontline officers. That's something that the Toronto Police Association uh, and the service wanted for frontline officers. And many people believe uh, will uh, result in fewer deaths. I'm not sure that I share that view. I'm pretty sure I don't personally share the view for what that's worth, which is not much. But uh, our client group you know, worries about that because if taser were used as a true alternative to lethal force, of course, that is better. So our clients, you know, fully appreciate that the chances of, of being killed by taser are lower than the chances of being killed by a bullet from a gun. That being said, the taser is not a lethal weapon option for frontline officers. It's an intermediate weapon option. So it may be used when otherwise a baton or pepper spray would be used on an assaultive person who's not carrying a weapon. So it's unlikely that taser will be reached for in place of a handgun. It may be used um, to in an attempt um, to control someone, but we're concerned, and I'm concerned, that it will be used um, in lieu of trying to talk someone down, in lieu of verbal uh, de-escalation. But there's one recommendation that was you know, fairly common in a lot of these inquests, and it's being implemented. And you never know. You never know. You know, hopefully it'll be used responsibly and further studies and data will be collected on how taser affects people in crisis, uh, which is something, you know, that one worries about uh, because psychiatric medications have a particularly adverse impact on your heart, and that's known. And uh, it may be that people in mental health crises are much more vulnerable um, to dying and or having their heart stop when they're tased, and there's not enough studies on that. One thing we do know is when taser is deployed, is 50% of the time that it's deployed, it's being used uh, on someone in a mental health crisis. So there's a for sure a disproportionate um, impact on the client population. Um, but you know, like I say, lots of positive inquest recommendations have also. Uh, been implemented. And I think the really big change is yet to be seen as the new Police Services Act requires special certification in de-escalation, which we've never seen before. We've had the annual requirement for use of force certification and recertification, and now we're going to have, as I understand it, um, mandatory certification in respect of de-escalation as a separate category rather than something that was always folded into the use of force. And I think that might make a big difference. Are there any other um, positive things that you think came from uh, the lessons learned during the LOCU that have been implemented? That is there one profound one in particular beyond what you've already told told us? I think the the most um, I think sea changing development over the last number of years and many inquests has been recommendations to involve the affected communities at every step of the policy making and implementation process. And the psychiatric consumer survivor community has provided over the last 20 years, a template for how that can be done, which has not been done with respect to the black community of Toronto, but I think will now be done based on that template. So, so it's not just about going out to talk to a handful of people who've had a mental health history and asking how they feel about police. It is about setting up a formal and enduring permanent subcommittee 
made of um, survivors or going forward people, uh, racialized communities and members of the community to advise the Toronto Police Service Board, for example. So there has been uh, a mental health subcommittee of the Toronto Police Service Board in place now for a number of years, consequent to one of these recommendations. So you have people with lived experience of mental health issues comprising this enduring advisory where they review all the proposals, they review you know all the motions, they um, they make deputations, they make submissions. Their voice is directly involved in the making of policy. Then they're involved directly at the training level. They're physically present at the police colleges delivering training. That way, the frontline officer gets to meet persons with lived experience of mental health issues other than in crisis moments, because we all understand now that these interactions go wrong because if you're responding to 25,000 calls a year and the only exposure you have to someone with a mental health issue is when they're in an acute crisis, you're going to form the impression uh, that that is, that is all there is. So this ongoing work with people um, with lived experience when they're not in crisis um, is very helpful to exposing the populations to each other and reducing the amount of fear that's experienced both by the client group and by the frontline police officer, because it's that fear on both sides of the equation that drives these, you know, rapid fire, lethal interactions that are tragedies. Mm -hmm. Well, it just goes to show, um, to me anyway, how complex all of these intersections are between uh, people suffering from mental health and the police dealing with it, because I think there's a perception uh, among many that you could simply go to the scene and deal with it no matter who you are. But clearly, from what you're saying, there's a lot more to it and uh, a lot of expertise is required, if not expertise, at least some familiarity on how to spot these. So uh, on a more personal level, Anita, how did you get involved in law in the first place? And particularly, how did the path set you towards your expertise and, and uh, the practice you've shaped today and so how did I become a lawyer um, you know it's a funny thing I I heard um, our Chief Justice uh, Winkler some number of years ago give a talk about how successful legal career paths are um, formed and I forget exactly what he said but I remember thinking it's a it's, it's just what I would say he said something like it's a combination of hard work and sheer luck or chance and I think that's I think that's certainly been true for me. Um, I I never wanted to be a lawyer. I had no intentions of being a lawyer. I had no idea what really being a lawyer meant. I'd always planned to be a doctor. My mother was a doctor. The plan was for me to be a doctor. And then um, after you know two years in um, undergrad, I got very sick. I ended up uh, being in a hospital for a long time. And I never wanted to see the inside of a hospital ever again. That was my feeling then. While I was in the hospital, I was bored. So I wrote a lot of practice LSAT exams. So one of my very strange claims to fame is I wrote a perfect LSAT test. Wow. Apparently, it's very rare and you get a little weird award for it. So um, I, I like to think it's because I'm super smart. But actually, I think if you spend a year sitting and doing nothing else but taking the practice LSAT test, Pretty well everyone would make this particular achievement. Nonetheless, we don't have to tell everyone. We're going to tell everyone now. But that is how I wrote a perfect LSAT um, test. And as a result... must be like one in like a, a million. It's extremely rare. I don't know. They, I remember looking it up. Then you actually got some 
weird acknowledgement for it at the time. You should just get automatic admission to any law school you want. You pretty much do. Yeah. So, and particularly <laughs> back, this was, we're talking about 1986 when I was first applying to law school. And, and we're also talking about the fact that I only had two years of undergraduate experience. So at that time, these things were equally weighted. So my grades for my first two years were worth two thirds of whatever the consideration was. And then this perfect also was a third of what they looked at. I really believe based on when I went to the UFT Law School ultimately and I looked at um, the, the quality of the candidates who were applying even in the late 80s when I sat as part of the faculty um, committees looking at admissions, I really believe I never would have gone into law school you know, even a year later because it was only because of this weird happenstance of that perfect health set comprising such a big percentage of my the things that they considered that I got into law school or that I got into the UFT law school at all. Um, and after that, you know, the, the only thing I knew for sure, so, so I go into law school, the only thing I know for sure is I never want to go inside another hospital because I'd been so sick for so long. And the other thing I knew for sure was that I never ever wanted to have anything to do with administrative law because really despised that in law school, didn't understand anything. And then after the bar ads and having to deal with some bookkeeping and accounting tests, I thought, like, who are these idiots that are practicing on their own doing this stuff? It's so awful. These are all the things I never want to do. So almost from the moment I started to practice law, I have done nothing but worked in sole practice or in a very small partnership responsible for all that miserable bookkeeping and accounting. I've done almost nothing outside of administrative law practice and I spend literally every day inside a hospital. <laughs> so that is that is my career. Full circle. It has been. Um, what advice would you have for an article in student today trying to follow a similar path in mental health law? If they thought this is I know what I want to do and I, I basically want to become the next Anita Segetti. Mm. Well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I I currently have two articling students, which is the most that you can have. And in years past number of years I've had an articling student every year. Um, and I have found it a, a very enriching experience for me. Um, mental health law per se, when I started out in the field, really didn't exist. There were maybe a handful of practitioners um, who did the work that I do now. <clears throat> right now, it is, it is actually a hot topic. That I am encouraged to see so much interest. Law schools have mental health law societies. I am inundated every day uh, by law students who are genuinely motivated and interested to work in the area. And I am really proud of that. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, you know, there's clearly, um, we're graduating more law students than, you know, our market can necessarily handle in every area of law. And there's clearly, you know, incredible competition for jobs and the work. How do you distinguish yourself if you want to impress someone who's doing the work? You know, I have found, again, it's, it's, it's chance, it's hard work, but also random luck and chance. Um, most of the students who end up working with me, I, I teach a lot. Um, I teach at the U of T, I teach trial advocacy, I um, am a guest lecturer in mental health courses. I'm out there teaching a lot. Um, students will come up to me they'll um, impress me with their questions and their interests. They'll ask if they can come to hearings, if they can come to court. 
they'll ask if they can write a paper for a conference that we have coming up. I've had that. We have a big conference coming up April 28th. Mm -hmm. And I've had young lawyers and students just gratuitously offer to write something to be published. And when I say, well, I'm not sure if we will be able to have you speak and present it because we're pressed for time, they say, no, 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 no. Just appreciate the opportunity to have the paper presented as part of somebody else's panel. And I think that's great. I'm seeing that kind of initiative. I'm seeing people coming up, offering to help with things, offering to help organize conferences. I have a new organization, the Law and Mental Disorder Association. I've had a young University of Toronto law student, you know, ask me whether she could work for the association for the summer. And um, it would have never occurred to me to, to look for that kind of stuff. In the end, we, you know, she was able to secure funding for that work. Um, so, you know, if, if you find uh, a practitioner in the field that you're interested in, contact that person and offer to do something for them. Because I'll tell you what doesn't help. I get, you know, dozens of, of emails um, and communications from um, law students which begin with, you know, first of all, I'd like to pick your brain about how you came to do this. Personally, I don't like that expression, so don't use it if you contact me. Um, But also, you know, it'll it'll be something like, I'd like to have a coffee and hear about, you know, how you came to this place in your career. I am so pressed for time. Sometimes those emails, you know, will even say, you know, my schedule is flexible and I can work around you. And I think, well, how nice, you know, every minute of my day is booked uh, from the minute I get up, you know, very early in the morning to when I finally pass out very late at night, my life is incredibly overbooked and we're all really super busy. So it's unlikely that, you know, given that volume of contact that I'm going to want to sit down with someone just because I've received a completely otherwise anonymous email asking to pick my brain, spend some time over coffee, letting them know how I got to where I've, I've gotten to. Better is to contact someone that whose work you admire, that maybe you want to work in with them or in the area, and say, this is who I am. I know you're super busy. Uh, if you have something coming up that I could help with, write a paper, organize a session, work with your organization, what can I do to help? I'd like some exposure. I'm happy to help um, because I have a genuine interest in this area. And and then people are incredibly receptive to that. They say, oh, you want to help? You want to help make my life easier? You want to do something that will contribute? Come on down. And that will turn. If you, if you do good work, if you're genuine, if you're interested, if you're supportive, if you're smart, it will turn into something, even if there's nothing there. So if you're waiting for a job ad to come up, that is the perfect thing for you. It may not happen in this market. But if you put yourself forward, um, you know, without being pushy about it, but if you offer to do something that will help, that shows your genuine interest, opportunities will be created as a consequence of that, I have found that in the last number of years, organically, these opportunities will be created um, together. You know, if you're creative about it, there's funding out there for all kinds of stuff. You, you know, put your mind to it, you create additional opportunities to work in different areas and things, really good things will come out of that. And even if they don't work out with the person that you've approached, you, it's your entry into 
the whole of the bar. It sounds like you are instrumental in a lot of these people getting into mental health. So I'm, I'm curious, who were some of your influencers um, leading into your practice? Or even today, for that matter. Um, so there was, I guess, my, my mentor, and I was very lucky to have her, and I think Ontario's pioneer in this field was a woman named Carla McKegg, who unfortunately um, has died a couple of years ago. But Carla McKegg went to law school uh, as a mature student herself after having had her three children and after suffering um, from very serious depression and herself undergoing a series of electroconvulsive shock treatments, uh, which according to Carla had really affected her memory and her ability to play the piano, which she was still genius at all these things. So can't imagine what she was like before, but her experience was um, as someone with lived experience of mental health, a psychiatric survivor. She then went to law school and made it her life's work to advocate for clients similarly situated. She was instrumental in ensuring that there are tribunals that review um, people's situation when they're detained. There was no consent and capacity board when she began advocating for people in hospital. She litigated some of the leading cases. She became a lawyer at uh, ARCH, which is still the Advocacy Resources Center for the Handicapped. And she was a very, very cool lady. So um, she certainly mentored me and uh, uh, worked with me on on the leading case of uh, Professor Starson in the Supreme Court of Canada, which was uh, my case, you know, my sort of career-making case also by happenstance, but she supported me through that. And she was a great mentor to me. So I consider her, you know, the the the... the the pioneer of mental health law, certainly in Ontario. Anything that I've brought to it builds on the basic building blocks that she really on her own um, somehow put together because she was brilliant. The The other um, woman that I had great uh, fortune to work with when I was a very young student um, was Mary Eberts, who's I think one of the titans of um, litigation in this province. So she was she brought, um, for me, I had an opportunity when I was but you know, 20, 22 years old um, to work alongside her and watch her argue cases in the Supreme Court of Canada. I had the great fortune of being able to work with her. And I have never to this day seen you know, that kind of talent in terms of appellate advocacy, the combination of brilliance and you know, the early comprehension of, of charter litigation and constitutional law coupled with the ability to communicate in an effective and unforgettable manner. Uh, so the cases I worked on with Mary when I was very young were about fetal rights uh, versus maternal rights. So um, they were, for example, um, the case of the negligent midwives out West where they were charged with um, uh, homicide when they failed to deliver uh, a fetus um, and and Chantal Degla, whose um, boyfriend wanted to stop her having an abortion, for example. So these cases went before the Supreme Court when I was a young law student, and I was able to watch um, the incredible advocacy, both written and oral advocacy, uh, of Mary Ebert. So um, th- those are my those are sort of my mentors, my main mentors. Uh, but to this day, I remain in awe of um, those who are 
supremely talented in litigation and particularly appellate litigation. I spend a lot of time, you know, I, I have to wonder what they think of me at the Court of Appeal. It's just across the street from my office. They probably think I'm, you know, I can imagine the justices of the Court of Appeal thinking, small wonder this woman works with the mentally ill because they probably think I'm a bit of a stalker. I drop in there. I've been doing this my entire career. If I have any time to spare, I will go sit in the back of a courtroom as part of the gallery in the Court of Appeal. I've done it since I was a new lawyer. Uh, and I recommend it to everyone, actually. Um, and just watch the the litigation that happens, the appellate litigation. So I've seen, you know, you see uh, amazing, amazing talent in that context. And you learn an awful lot about the art and advocacy, the art and science of advocacy. And it's all stuff that cannot be taught. So now that I'm involved in teaching advocacy, I realize that, you know, there's certainly pathways to teaching advocacy mm -hmm. but ultimately everybody develops their own style is there one or two points that you think you really need to know as an advocate something that you feel is a key point if there was a uh, a mantra to say before every case that you do or you'd say to a young lawyer what do they need to know as a so justice laskin is um john laskin is big on saying this and this is i think the most useful thing that i've ever heard about written advocacy, he will say, you know, this is not a mystery novel. Your factum is not a mystery novel. Don't spend the first 25 pages leaving the reader wondering where you're going. He also says, forget the wind up and pitch. If you come out, the first things out of your mouth and the first thing in your overview and your written advocacy should be what you want, who your client is, what you're there asking for, what you want and why. Get to the point. Because nobody has the patience um, to listen to you drone on with background history and facts. Um, get to the point. It's important, it's probably most important um, to be candid with the tribunal and to be fair to the evidence. I think one of the biggest mistakes we see in, in younger lawyers, they get very invested in their case and they will, without meaning to, overstate their case. There's nothing worse than ruining your reputation early on because judges remember you and they won't trust you if they think you're not giving them their own good. So be candid, be fair to the evidence, get to the point. And if you can, be somewhat interesting without being too informal. Um, because the other thing that sinks people is that they're tied to a script and they can't relax. So that comes with experience, but the more yourself you can be, the more interesting and more conversational and candid you can be, I think the more compelling you will be. I'll tell you this one thing. This is what you aspire to. I went to the swearing out ceremony, I had the great pleasure to represent the Criminal Lawyers Association as one of the directors to the swearing out ceremony of Justice Eleanor Cronk. It was sad as it was to see her go. Marie Hennon was one of the presenters speaking to Justice Cronk, and Marie, of course, was very funny. She said, you know, I know you've made your decision to retire, but I'm an appellate lawyer, so I'm <laughs> now going to try and persuade you to stay. And um, in response, Justice Cronk said something about Marie Hennon that no doubt is true, um, that, that is what I would aspire to. 
and we should all as- aspire to if you want to be compelling litigators. I was really very, very jealous that this had been said about Marie, but it, it is so deserved. So what Justice Cronk said about Marie was, you know, when Marie comes before the Court of Appeal, uh, Justice Cronk's view anyway was um, everyone would agree not to decide the case right away, having heard from her, but would, would take their time and would go away and revisit it later because she's just so compelling that when she's done talking, you feel like the only reasonable outcome to your matter that you've just heard is whatever Marie's just told you to do. Uh, and I, I think Scott Hutchison, same thing. I've seen him do a ton of, uh, ton of stuff. And I think a lot of the great appellate litigators, at least of our bar, you listen to them. Of course, they're there presenting their client's case. But when they're talking, it doesn't sound like they're advocating that client's position. It sounds like they're telling you, based on everything that's available that any of us can know about this case, the only reasonable, sensible, and fair outcome is this. And when they're done talking, you think, okay, I don't know what the other side could possibly say about this, but whatever it is, it's not gonna change my mind. And that's dangerous when you're the court, right? Because they can, they can really say anything. Um, but that's what I want people saying about me. I don't think anyone does, but that's what, <laughs> I, that's what I want them saying about me. What does a great day look like to you, Anita? Um, you, I know, you know it's a busy day, that's for sure. But what does is, what is a great busy day look like? So I think the greatest days are the days of small victories because the days of big victories are really few and far between. Of course, we live for those days of the big victories. We live for the cases where our judgment comes in and we've won, we've won liberty for someone. But they're, you know, they're few and far between and we all know it. Um, but, uh, but the day-to-day great days are the, those days where you're with your client and you're standing up for your client. I was thinking the other day and I said to my teenage children um, that it's almost bizarre to me and I get quite emotional about it, but it surprises me every day and yet it remains true every day how much I love saying I am Mr. and Miss So-and-So's lawyer. You know, I get an enormous out of satisfaction about walking into a room with whoever is on the other side, whether it's the crown or the tribunal or the psychiatrist or the hospital's lawyer and saying, this is Mr. or Miss so-and-so and I am this person's lawyer. Uh, because up until that point, that person uh, has had direct contact with a lot of state authority and you've not been there to be that buffer and to be that advocate. And the effect that you have when you walk into that room, everybody's attitude toward your client changes. Uh, Generally speaking, they won't be disrespecting or discounting your client because now they're having a deal with you because you're that person's lawyer. It's just the magic in that term. And I get to do that, you know, I'm very fortunate. I get to do that every day. I go into hearing rooms, I go into client meetings, I go into spaces and I announce that I'm this person's lawyer. 
And then it's a game changer right there. And then just the amount of confidence and self-respect that the, the client who's a vulnerable person, who's a poor person, who's an unwell person, um, you, just the how just watching that person, you know, sitting up a bit more straight as you sit up straight and the confidence and the self-esteem and the comfort and the power, the literal empowerment that happens when you're their lawyer and you're sitting with them and standing with them. Now, I love those moments. Um, and those, those are great days. Now you're getting me emotional. <laughs> the, um, the one thing I, I, I wonder with you, Anita, is you, you're so uh, involved. Uh, you've already said, you know, you wake up at four and pass out late at night. Uh, notwithstanding, you do all of this. Um, you have, uh, you're an author to uh, a guide to consent and capacity law in Ontario by LexisNexis. I mean, I could go on for an entire podcast of all the things you've done. Um, so I'm wondering. Shall we? Yeah, well, we shall. Yeah, it's a. Uh, <laughs> But I'm, I'm curious, though, how do you achieve, as best you can, harmony? What do you say to lawyers who are trying to strike a balance between the passion they have for law, but at the same time, you know, their family and other things? So that's a really important question. So I, looking back on my 25 years now at the bar, I think I made a mistake for, you know, the first at least big chunk of that when I was a new lawyer, and then for the first 10 years of my daughter's life, I never took a break. Um, there was a, a lot of reasons I go to that, and one of them is just financial constraints. If you don't have any money, you don't have any supports, you just have to work, and all your clients are legally aided, you have to work around the clock just to you know pay the rent and the, the hydro and the lights to be kept on at the office. My daughter's turning 16 this fall, and when she was about, she's my eldest, when she was about 10 years old, um, I told a colleague that the kids were complaining that they had never been on an airplane, which was true. And one of my colleagues suggested when they were very young that I put them on an airplane to Ottawa for 50 bucks or whatever. And when we get there, tell them we're in Rome and they won't know the difference. I thought that was pretty good approach, but even that we didn't do. But when my daughter was 10 and my son was about seven and I told my colleague that we've never been on a family holiday. That colleague said, you know, that, that's child abuse. Uh, and he was joking, of course. But I thought, you know, we're not far off. Like, these children have never had a proper holiday. I mean, we would take day trips and we would go to Niagara Falls and stuff like that. But we'd never gone on a proper airplane-type holiday. So I decided to change that. And um, around the same time, my son was becoming very interested in baseball. So over the last six years or so, we have combined these things and we have gotten more and more involved in uh, following our beloved Blue Jays, which I've always loved baseball going back to the World Series years, but with a, with a seven-year-old son, it was particularly fun. So our family has um, gone down to games and begin traveling with the team. So now we've gone for increasingly longer periods of time to Chicago, to New York, to Boston, to Tampa Bay, to all the places that the Jays have played. And it's really brought our family together. We're building memories and you can feel the memories being built. And the kids will never forget this stuff. Hopefully it'll be a tradition that they pass on to their children. Um, so what I have found is, is traveling, taking holidays, uh, having this interest that 
you can share with your children while they're still teenagers and still with us. It's been uh, it's been a a profound opportunity to step away from from the rigors and the stressors of the work. It's very hard to stay stressed about files when you're at the ballpark. It's a really, you know, it's a really profound effect that just heading into a baseball park has when all the fans and all the food and all the players, and if you know what's going on, it's very hard to, to stay stressed. And that's just down the street. So those are the two things that I think have improved uh, my life and hopefully that of my family over the last number of years. And um, while I still have uh, the kids at home, I certainly intend to make the most of that. Well, on that note, we've got a, um, a game starting shortly against the White Sox. So uh, We're going to win. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to win big. So one last question then before the game starts. If you could change uh, something really important in the law, let's say you were the Attorney General or the Chief Justice of the Court, is there one thing that you would just love to see changed overnight? I think I would not separate into artificial clusters um, people with mental health issues who come in to civil streams or criminal streams. Like I said earlier, I think we're talking about one population, people who live the experience of mental health issues from time to time. I don't know why we bother having these elaborate systems of detention. Uh, I don't think most of these clients require detention. I think there are probably a very, very few who pose a real risk to public safety who require detention. Very few. Um, a small percentage of the people who are actually languishing detained at great social cost. I would um, get rid of the legal systems and therefore my job and figure out a way to support clients in the community provide them their self-identified needs, provide resources. Instead of spending all this money, it costs like 1100 bucks a day or something to keep someone detained in a secure psychiatric setting. That's like three or four nights of the four seasons. We could put up all the clients in fancy hotels, build housing, build decent housing, provide you know, some living wage or some decent amount of money so that they don't have to try and figure out if they should be trying to house themselves or feed themselves. Make sure people are resourced, afford them educational opportunities, afford them job opportunities, afford them social and other health supports, and stop criminalizing the mentally ill. Um, there's nothing being gained by it. Um, by and large, it's, it's really unproductive uh, for people to be detained. Um, so I would just erase all the legal stuff and support people to reduce any need for detention mechanisms. That's what I would do. Well, Anita, I can't thank you enough. This has been extremely interesting. I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love this podcast. Well, thank you very much, Sean, for thinking of me and including me in this very important series. I'm really honored and privileged. Okay, now let's go watch the Jays crush the socks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs>